Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Multiple drug manufacturers are in different phases of COVID-19 vaccine trials as they race to help end this pandemic. But there's concern about how the speed of these trials and political rhetoric have affected the public's perceptions of vaccine safety. Coming up, we talk to ProPublica about the process that exists to make sure a COVID-19 vaccine is safe. We'll also hear from Hartford HealthCare about its new center to treat so-called long haulers, people who are still experiencing symptoms long after they've tested positive for COVID-19. Dr. Ajay Kumar will join us to answer our questions and yours. First, who are the people you trust? Often they're family members or close friends, but relationships can blossom between people you see regularly, like your hairdresser. The city of New Haven hopes those kinds of relationships with your stylist or barber can help individuals who need more resources than just someone to listen to them. Joining us now on Zoom is Adrian Jefferson. She's Director of Arts and Cultural Affairs for the city of New Haven. Adrian, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, we know that this pandemic has taken a toll on the mental health of so many Americans. Uh, there's a Kaiser Family Foundation poll back in July that found more than half of all Americans say their mental health has been negatively negatively impacted. So when we think about uh, what's going on in, in uh, each of our lives and we think about the priorities that uh, cities put on resources, uh, talk through some of the conversations you're having uh, with uh, other departments in New Haven to help address the mental health needs of residents. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that what happened was we saw very early on amidst the pandemic, um, a need for extreme focus on community well-being and mental health. Um, This is something that we were talking about addressing head on prior to the pandemic. But when the pandemic came, it was exacerbated. And um, the mental health issues were particularly exacerbated in the areas where there are our most vulnerable populations and people of color. And so we really wanted to um, partner in an effort with the Community Service Administration under the Together New Haven brand that we created as our economic and resiliency efforts um, to help mitigate the damage of COVID-19. We wanted to make sure we always had a community well-being and mental health focus. And so as we were seeing these these different issues arise and the trauma that was happening, we um, really wanted to partner closely to think about different alternative options to mental health for those in those most most vulnerable populations and for those in the hotspots. I mentioned you're the arts and cultural uh, affairs uh, director for the city of New Haven. And so why is your department part of this conversation? That's such a good question. Um, You know, I think a lot of times when people think about a role such as mine, they usually keep it in the arts box. Mm -hmm. And um, really, my role expands beyond the arts. It it, it expands to culture and how we shape culture, how we look at what we normalize, um, and how we are able to um, be present when it comes to inequities and address inequities head on. 
So we were already working on what I refer to as cultural equity. Mm-hmm. And what that means is not that just we're looking at arts equity, but that we're looking at the different areas that are impacted that that cause people a barrier for being able to participate in the arts. So that means we would be looking at healthcare, we would be looking at transportation, we were looking at housing, right? Anything that's just a barrier to your normal everyday life, being able to address those injustices, correct those injustices, and then start to be able to address how people then also gain access to the arts. And so it's really a natural fit when you think about the fact that the arts and, and the culture can really connect with different cross sectors and be able to address these issues in a very, very unique way, which is why um, we were selected to be a part of this process. Hmm. Talk through how you confront the stigma that still exists in our communities when we think about mental health and Mm. sometimes people are afraid to ask for help. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. I think so. That's exactly why Hmm. we wanted to come up with an alternative program, because there is a stigma that, you know, not everyone's going to go to, you know, the psychologist. Actually, not everyone's going to have access to a therapist or a psychologist, right? So we wanted to really begin to think about how do we do something that doesn't seem overwhelming, doesn't feel like pressure to speak, but that feels comfortable, which is why we were talking about the um, working with salons and barbers and working with clergymen and artists as a point of contact and as um, an alternative to going in to see a therapist, that these people would be able to identify any type of issues that seem to become uh, something that they need to be aware of, be able to identify the signs so that they can then work with individuals who already trust them if they need more help and be able to direct them to the right resources. So this program itself does address the stigma because the stigma very much well exists. And, And I think, especially when you're looking at the black and brown community, the reason that the stigmas exist a lot of the time is because many times in these professions, people in the black and brown community do not see therapists and do not see psychologists and do not see anybody in that t- particular health profession that often look like them, right? Mm-hmm. So they already feel like people are not going to understand their specific issues, right? The things that they're dealing with, the traumas that may be in their life and the very specific ways that their environment may, may be created. And so I think that that, that perpetuates the stigma. Um, and so and so that's another issue that we we are looking to hopefully address in the future. You're hearing Adrian Jefferson here on Where We Live. She's Director of Arts and Cultural Affairs for the City of New Haven. So you're really thinking about out-of-box ways to connect residents uh, with uh, resources that they may not even know about, but also uh, working with community members like barbers and stylists who uh, individuals trust to talk about their lives. And so I'm wondering like, how you get buy-in from from you know hairstylists and salon owners and barbers yeah. to have right. the right tools so that when they're talking with their clients that they're mm. able to uh, adequately address some of their concerns and, and point them to the right resources, Adrian. Right. So the training itself is a partnership with BH Care, who um, does this. You know, they are the professionals who um, are situated under the Con- Connecticut Mental Health. Uh, Institute. Mm -hmm. And what they do is they have a training that's pretty much a behavioral health webinar training that anyone can take. You do not need to be a health professional to take this. And it's focused on 
education and awareness of substance abuse, mental health issues and disordered gambling, and helping people to be able to identify and respond to the signs. So the training is actually the resource to be able to, uh, again, train people to be able to identify signs and to be able to actually feel like they are qualified to just do that. So I just want to be clear that this is not saying that this would take the place of, of, of therapy or those who actually need you know, further help and professional help. But it is saying that, you know, so often we come in contact with people who may not be healthcare professionals, but you trust them more. So we want to be able to give those people the resources to be able to help so that they can really direct people who are struggling to the right resources. So you're offering this type of mental health first aid training to uh, hairstylists and barbers and other people in the New Haven community that could help connect residents to resources. So what has been the response? And if someone's listening now and wants to get involved, how do they do that, Adrian? Um, so we uh, we just launched this program uh, probably about a week ago. And so the response has been trickling in uh, a little slowly, but definitely people have been reaching out feeling like it's very unique and it's time for us to do programming like this. And so if anything, we've had a lot of people reach out who have other ideas on how to expand on this and are just really happy that we we have an alternative program and that we're thinking in this direction. Um, you know, the city of New Haven has recently launched the crisis response unit as well, mm-hmm. um, which is not something that I'm involved in, but it is just another example of the fact that we're just thinking about many different alternative options. So this is what the community has been asking for for a while. Um, I had chaired a community well-being group that came out of the Together New Haven efforts um, during COVID-19. And the community well-being committee was um, nothing but residents who were from the most vulnerable populations. And, and the number one thing that came up was the need to address health care and, and mental health and, and community well-being. Um, and that so the response that we're getting this is almost in response to that information we were getting from them Hmm. and then uh, again adrian for our listeners who want to learn more where's where's the best place to go i would say go to togethernewhaven.com and go under community well-being Well, Adrian Jefferson, it sounds like a great uh, opportunity and initiative uh, to get residents connected. I I can't wait to follow up with you in a few months to see how it's going. Great. Thank you so much. Adrian Jefferson, again, is Director of Arts and Cultural Affairs for the City of New Haven. We'll also put a link up at our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we speak to Hartford HealthCare's Dr. Ajay Kumar about COVID-19 cases rising in Connecticut. What questions do you have about a potential second wave in our state? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. And you can also find us on Facebook. Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. On Friday, the governor said Connecticut's positivity rate was 2.4 percent, which reflects an increase in the spread of COVID-19 and the number of tests performed across our state. Hospitalizations are also up. Should we be worried? 
Joining us now on Zoom is Dr. Ajay Kumar. He's Chief Clinical Officer for Hartford HealthCare. Uh, Dr. Kumar, welcome back to the show. Good morning, Lucy. Our listeners can join us as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, coming up in a few minutes, I wanted to hear more about uh, how Hartford HealthCare is is helping uh, treat uh, so-called long haulers, people who have tested positive a while ago and still have symptoms um, because of COVID-19. But uh, Dr. Kumar, I wanted you to help us interpret um, some of the, the data the, the, over the last month where we know in Connecticut, our positivity rate was pretty low, under 1% for much of the summer. But since September, it's been slowly rising and now above 2% on Friday. How do you interpret this? And should we should we be concerned? Lucy, um, thank you for having me. Um, we should be concerned. Uh, we should always be concerned. We're in the middle of the pandemic and we've seen um, through tremendous amount of discipline and focus across the Connecticut. I think we've maintained the positivity rate less than one person for several weeks. And I want to remind the, the listeners that back in April, uh, we had the peak of our uh, positivity rate and the number of hospitalization. And since then, um, with a variety of work we've done, I think in June, we had seen the lowest number of hospitalization and, um, um, and conversion rate. And we maintained that momentum for a long time. And recent past, we've seen some increase in um, in um, uh, case reports, especially in the Norwich, Willimantic, and Hartford um, counties. Mm. And it, it's, there's a possibility it might happen in Litchfield and uh, New Haven as well uh, over the next several days. It could be very uh, much related to a variety of factors. One, uh, because schools and colleges are opening, there's a bit more mobility among the people. Uh, it could very well be because um, 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 you know, there's some uh, folks actually traveling and meeting the, the family and other members. But primarily it is because of the fatigue I'm finding, or at least we are finding among the folks regarding the uh, mask use and hand hygiene other precautions. Um, so these are concerning trends right now as of last Friday. I think we had 187 patients admitted in the hospitalization. Hospitalization rate is a single important factor to correlate with the mortality, number of patients who might die in the state of Connecticut. Uh, all the numbers are lower, but it is because the more younger people are being positive at this time. Uh, we have seen increased number of positive rate between 2029 and 30 and 39. And these generally, these individuals don't always get admitted to the hospital, uh, but these are individuals who are uh, very mobile and they can infect um, other members of the community who are very vulnerable. And in um, in next few weeks, we might see increased further increase in hospitalization and increase in mortality. So yes, we need to be concerned uh, how, and we are watching the numbers very carefully at this time. When you talk about in the coming weeks, uh, seeing uh, higher numbers, is that because as uh, as the weather gets colder, uh, people are socializing more indoors and maybe as you mentioned this quarantine fatigue, not thinking about wearing their mask and social distancing, Dr. Kumar? That is true, Lucy. We've seen um, 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 through the patient interviews and other um, discussions we've had, we've noticed that folks actually are uh, congregating indoors more. And generally, your folks are thinking this is a small gathering of friends and family. I know I hang out, my kids hang out, um, and, and they are they are gathering uh, in a small setting right now more frequently in an in indoor setting, and that's causing spread at this time. And that's a common phenomenon we are seeing. Um, look, um, I understand that the fatigue with mask and fatigue of social distancing is a significant challenge for our community. 
Uh, but it is actually very important that how we manage the, um, the pandemic at this time. I think the, the power of managing the pandemic is lies within the people. If we are continue to remain disciplined, if we continue to uh, focus on simple measures, um, um, and when we are meeting with folks, wear the mask, social distancing, protect the vulnerable people, the things we've talked several times before, we cannot let our guards down at this time. Uh, it is important that we continue to pay attention to that. You're hearing Dr. Ajay Kumar here on Where We Live. He's Chief Clinical Officer for Hartford Healthcare. If you have a question about uh, the COVID cases that are rising in our state, uh, the number 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page. Find us on Twitter uh, at Where We Live. You mentioned that, that cases among young people have been growing. Do you think that uh, because early on in this pandemic there was such a uh, strong messaging about the dangers of this disease for older people that uh, younger people think that they're invincible, Dr. Kumar. That is that is true. I think um, uh, there's a, some contrast from the April, uh, March and April time when we had um, almost created a lockdown. There's a significant amount of folks actually were staying indoors and the, the movement was limited. And uh, with the change, uh, which is rightfully so, I think we need to accommodate our concerns about the economy and folks getting back to work, we have let those um, uh, principles um, um, a bit more relaxed right now with our reopening in Connecticut. And I think we were in the right place to do so, given the discipline we had um, uh, noticed. Uh, but these individuals, uh, what we're finding, especially young generation, um, maybe not adhering to the social distancing, distancing or mask procedures very well. Um, so numbers are concerning uh, if there's so many of the young ones are positive. Mm. Uh, I mentioned the weather getting colder and more of us will be staying indoors, Dr. Kumar. And so uh, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're telling people that they still need to be wearing masks, uh, even if, uh, you know, it might be among family, because that's where you're seeing spread happening. Yes, Lucy, I think uh, the way I would describe, um, um, uh, let, let me take a step back. I'm, I'm very supportive of uh, social uh, gatherings in an appropriate setting. Uh, I think that that uh, exposure is, is really important for mental health and, and other variety of uh, reasons. However, if you're meeting the friends and family, uh, and if you are, um, you're not living with them um, all the time, make sure you, you sit or you have a gathering which can be accommodated in the right space you have. You're able to sit further apart. You're able to use a mask and obviously protect the, the most vulnerable ones, the elderly, the immunocompromised, the folks actually who have some sort of autoimmune disease who, who, or diabetics uh, who can get um, um, significantly ill um, in this, these, these times. Now, I wanted to move on, uh, Dr. Kumar, and talk about uh, this new recovery center that Hartford HealthCare has unveiled. Uh, by now, uh, people have heard this term long haulers, uh, this yes. idea that people that have been diagnosed with COVID and they've recovered, but then they're still having symptoms. And depending on the person, the symptoms vary. And I'm just wondering if you could talk more about uh, this uh what people are experiencing and, and how your uh, hospital system's working uh, to help them. Yeah, so I'm, I'm really proud of Heart for Healthcare's um, uh, capability to be able to provide that kind of a programmatic approach to, to, to those individuals who are suffering from post-COVID uh, symptoms. Um, so we've noticed over the uh, several weeks um, and in some publications, especially from Europe, and um, um, one was published in JAMA, 
um, only um, in late September, indicating that up to 10% of the folks actually who have had COVID positive, irrespective of their hospitalization status, could continue to have a lingering symptoms. And symptoms could be very vague, uh, could be weakness, could be mm -hmm. constant fatigue, uh, could be muscle cramps and uh, what we call the dysautonomia, that you're dizzy, you can't stand and walk, um, some confusion, people feel brain fog, that they're forgetting things. There's some dermatological manifestations. There is a shortness of breath, unable to walk for long distance, chest pain. So a variety of symptoms we are noticing the patients are reaching out to our healthcare system. And, and our, our team, our clinical team has been looking into that. And um, our team started putting the protocols across the state of Connecticut. As you know, we are present in almost all the cities and across the Hartford uh, state of Connecticut. We have 400 plus centers. Mm -hmm. We have a very integrated approach of care from home care to the nursing home to primary care group to urgent care to the acute hospitals. So our teams and institutes have defined a standardized protocol of managing those patients. Um, so we have a very um, as, um, a standardized way of working. Because we have a wide variety of services, including uh, neurological, neuroscience institute, heart investor, pulmonary medicine, integrated medicine, physical medicine, uh, dermatological um, consultations and variety of things. What we have done now um, is to provide an ease of access um, to the patients, a single call-in number, 860-827-3200. Uh, the patient can call, they'll be appropriately triaged to the primary care or one of our specialists who are paying attention, who are, um, who are treating those COVID patients at this time across the state of Connecticut. Now, um, the reason to create such a, um, a programmatic approach is one, this, this disease is very new. And the, uh, as I indicated, the patients are presenting with variety of symptoms. Difficult to pinpoint how do you navigate the maze of healthcare. And if we want to make it simple, with our experts across the state of Connecticut, with our um, post-acute rehabilitation program through our behavioral health network, through our different institutes, that patients get a standardized, appropriate care wherever they are in the state of Connecticut. Um, and uh, we are able to do that because we have a large system and we are able to do that because we have experts uh, who are paying attention to what is going on with the patient at this time. Mm -hmm. Dr. Kumar, I wanted to maybe back up a little uh, and talk about uh, the individuals that are um, having these sustained uh, symptoms. What do you know about, uh, I guess, the, the demographic? Is it a widespread, whether someone's in their 30s and tested positive and recovered versus someone in their 80s, that they still will have these uh, residual symptoms? Yeah, Lucy, we don't have a whole lot of data on this uh, on this specific question at this time, but data is emerging. I'll give you some stats at this time. About 80% of the patients actually who have those symptoms um, are not hospitalized. These are the individuals actually who never actually came to the hospital during the acute COVID crisis, uh, but they were positive with COVID. Uh, we're seeing uh, up to two to three months, uh, at least on average, um, two, two, two and a half months on average, Patients continue to have some sort of a symptom, so that's mm -hmm. fatigue or shortness of breath and other things. Now, we haven't had much experience because as months go by, we will learn more. But uh, there is a concern among some of the scientists that uh, we would have this long hauler symptoms for several months to go by. Um, so uh, it's important to provide a comprehensive, integrated approach to care for the patients. You can join our conversation with Dr. Ajay Kumar from Hartford HealthCare, the number 888-720-9677. Uh, Rebecca is calling from Rocky Hill. Rebecca, you're on the show. 
Hello. My question relates to the schools. Since the schools have been opening, even though the numbers uh, in the communities have gone higher, and it appears that Governor Lamont is willing to accept much higher numbers and still keep the schools open, how does that work to anybody's benefit? I understand that people do have to get back to work. I'm one of those people myself, but I'm not sure what the cost is in lives and medical costs. Thank you, Rebecca, for your call. Thank you. Uh, Rebecca has a great question. Um, let me take a step back here to explain uh, how at least I think about uh, the positive rate where the state is. Mm-hmm. Look, there's much to be proud of Connecticut, uh, what we have done so far. Um, the number of cases we have, the rate increase and the, the decline in mortality in the last several weeks, we've done, we've done an excellent job in that part here. And compared to any other state in the country, or uh, if you look uh, abroad as well, the Connecticut actually is doing really well. And so it's always about balancing the risk and benefit at this time. In my opinion, um, the children um, needs to get socialization, needs to get education, needs to get the right amount of uh, precautions. I personally think that most of the schools have taken a good measures to protect our children uh, with the plexiglass, the hand hygiene, the ventilation system. I think the governor and his team has put out a very sound policy uh, so far. So I'm very supportive um, and my children are going to school as well. I'm very supportive of that uh, phased opening at, at this time. Now, if the positivity rate, which goes up and we have a widespread uh, infection in Connecticut, I think we may have a different conversation at the time. Um, but again, I go back to that the, the fate of our recovery lies with the citizens of Connecticut. How well we take care of this um, um, precautions and other things we talked about earlier on. Can we talk more about when you said uh, as, you know, if our positivity rate continues to grow and, and then that'll be a time to really start to think maybe we should pare back. So we're already seeing hot spots, say, in, in eastern Connecticut, Dr. Kumar. And so what is that number where uh, local officials, uh, superintendents to say, you know, maybe we shouldn't be having our students in school? Um, it's it's not a single number uh, from my standpoint. I think I will I will think about multiple uh, metrics. One is okay. the positive rate and what um, what uh, age group we are finding that. Uh, the second one would be the hospitalization rate. Um, is how much hospitalization is occurring, which actually talks about the capacity of the healthcare system to be able to support the community need. We also need to think about how the flu gets um, into the into the whole mix here, coming in the in the winter months. If we have a widespread flu, I think the conversation will be very different at the time here. So I think there are a variety of factors will, will, will come to place. I don't think there's a single number, at least I look at. Mm. However, the positive rate less than 5%, I'm pretty comfortable with that um, is, as um, um, for the schools and other phase reopening process uh, going has laid out. So you said less than 5% positivity rate. You said that. Um, That's right. Okay. Uh, Liz is calling in from Southbury. Liz, you're on the show. Hi, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I was wondering, I have two children in preschool and in elementary school, and um, they have been doing an excellent job um, following all procedures. And I'm wondering, for the upcoming flu season, I'm, I hear a lot with parents that they say, oh, the, the kids are not going to get as sick this year. Um, flu season shouldn't be as bad because we're all socially distancing, wearing masks and whatnot. Um, my son, though, about three weeks into school, did get a little cold and uh, shared it with all of us. So I'm wondering, um, what, what is your opinion on the upcoming flu and cold season? And 
will we get it just like we have in the past, or will we see it being uh, very mild this year? It's a great question, Liz. Um, so uh, with the social distancing and face masks, we should see a milder flu season this year. However, if you don't vaccinate ourselves, um, it could lead to increased um, hospitalization. It could lead to increased um, uh, spread. Uh, even those folks, as, as we talked about earlier on, in the close um, social setting, the families and the units of families and, uh, and neighbors uh, at the time here. And I think as, as we think about from the public policy perspective, our job is to limit the morbidity, mortality, and the hospitalization rate, which actually directly correlates, as I indicated earlier on, to increase suffering uh, in the community. Mm -hmm. So the more folks actually take vaccine, uh, follow the uh, procedures um, um, such as mask and hand hygiene, we should see a very low number of uh, flu uh, patients. That allows us to focus, continue to focus on COVID because pandemic is not going away in the winter and we're gonna to have to continue to manage that. And from a social perspective, we wanna make sure our healthcare institutions uh, across the Connecticut are ready to support whatever the needs are. What we wouldn't want is a significant rise in COVID which overwhelms the healthcare systems across the state of Connecticut. So unable to provide access and care to the individuals who need it. And at the same time, increased flu numbers uh, because of lack of vaccination or lack of mask or um, use or social distancing. And that would cripple our healthcare system in the state of Connecticut significantly if that is to happen. And that would not be good for our citizens uh, and getting through the winter. And it has direct correlation into a recovery effort and um, uh, social well-being and mental well-being as well. So these are very important factors. We need to continue to pay attention to both of them equally. Uh, before the pandemic, uh, each uh, f each year, uh, the number of Americans getting uh, the flu vaccine uh, could have been improved. I'm just wondering, anecdotally, it seems like a lot of people are getting the flu shot this year. Uh, what is Hartford HealthCare seeing in terms of, of its uh, uh, patients and people that are coming in for regular appointments? Is it something that people are taking more seriously this year, Dr. Kumar? You know, it's very early to tell at the moment. Um, it's still in the middle of October. Um, I think generally we have seen a, as expected demand for the flu vaccination. Uh, it is not exceptionally high or lower at this time. So I'm, I, I remain optimistic uh, that our citizens will take the advice very seriously and, um, and get the vaccine as needed. I wanted to ask you uh, before we end, Dr. Kumar, uh, the state has an advisory group that's in charge of coming up with a plan to distribute a COVID-19 vaccine when available. I know Hartford HealthCare is part of this group. I'm just wondering if you could talk through um, how Hartford HealthCare is working with this advisory panel. And when we think about, you know, come next spring or summer, if uh, the vaccine, uh, if there is a vaccine and if it's available, the logistics issues and demand issues that residents uh, should consider to manage expectations. Yeah, Lucy, this is a evolving discussion as we as we know. Um, uh, State of Connecticut has done, um, I think, a good job of presenting uh, our thinking about how we are going to be managing the vaccine distribution um, across the state of Connecticut. I can talk about the heart for healthcare specifically. As you know, we have developed a significant uh, logistical capability uh, with the testing with our mobile units, with our Go Health and urgent care, uh, and variety of access points across the state of Connecticut, we've already prepared ourselves to make sure that we have the right amount of storage available. As you know, these two vaccines, which are in the play right now, requires ultra low freezing, 
And there's a significant challenge about how you actually transport those vaccines when they become available. Uh, so we have, um, um, in our work groups, have already created the possibility of distributing the vaccines through our uh, channels. And we're very well prepared at this time. What we don't know at the moment, which is uh, when the vaccine will be arriving, what we don't know about the entire safety profile at the moment. And we still are in the early stages of discussing who should get the vaccine as a first, um, um, as a, um, a, who should be in the first in line to get the vaccine. Some guidelines has been provided by the state of Governor, uh, state of Connecticut's uh, task force, which I think are very sound and reasonable. Art for Healthcare has team members actually who are included in this discussion. We are making sure that um, um, uh, um, you know we continue to support the governor's effort at this time. Uh, this is going to be an interesting challenge for all of us um, as a community. Uh, but I'm I'm very hopeful the vaccine when it comes out uh, would would help us manage the pandemic um, as we go. Uh, further in the next several months. When we think about managing expectations, obviously high-risk populations being the first to get this vaccine when it's available, Dr. Kumar. And so uh, this idea that once a vaccine is um, uh, available, we might have to still wear masks and social distance for the time being. That is right. Um, you know, vaccines capability uh, requires that we, we will have a, a small amount of vaccine available for us initially, and then hopefully in the spring and in, uh, sometime in May and June, we'll have a more vaccine available. So this uh, pandemic is going to continue to challenge us for several months to go by. Um, so we have to continue to follow the uh, same precautions and protocols as we've been talking about. Uh, I do want to uh, make sure that the vaccine's efficacy depends on the number of people get it. Uh, so the herd immunity concept, we need to have X amount of people actually who should get the vaccine to be able to create the barrier uh, or reduce the spread of the COVID-19. I do want to remind the uh, listeners, there is a good possibility we will continue to see this COVID-19 uh, on every season over the time. And unfortunately, it's going to come back next year at this time. We're going to be talking about that again. So as we prepare ourselves, uh, we have so many unknowns on the vaccine in the sense of duration, how long the immunity lasts the safety aspect, and how many doses we need to take, probably two at the moment, what we know so far. So this is a evolving discussion at this time, and more as science evolves, we will know more. Um, but on the positive side, having a vaccine available in such a short time is a, is, a, is a testament of our scientific work, which has happening across the world right now. So there's a lot to be proud of, but at the same time, a lot to be cautious, uh, um, a lot, lot to remain cautious about as we go forward. Dr. Ajay Kumar is Chief Clinical Officer for Hartford Healthcare. Dr. Kumar, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Lucy. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk more about uh, the speed of these vaccine trials and how political rhetoric have both affected the public's perceptions of vaccine safety. We'll hear from a reporter from ProPublica to explain the process uh, to make sure that the vaccine, when it becomes available, is safe. More right after the break.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to talk about election polling. What should we trust? That conversation on Tuesday. We hope you join us. Now, while the world waits for a COVID-19 vaccine, there are questions about vaccine trials, especially after the president claimed a vaccine could be ready by Election Day. But approval for vaccines takes time, and there are many hurdles that must be cleared before a vaccine is ready to be administered to the general public. To walk us through those steps, joining us on Zoom is Caroline Chen. She's health reporter for ProPublica. Caroline, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me on. So I know some listeners probably know last Friday, uh, Pfizer said that they would not apply for emergency authorization for their vaccine till at least mid-November. So uh, Caroline, when that news came out, effectively, uh, none of the vaccines will be approved before Election Day, something that uh, President Trump uh, said uh, would be a possibility. Mm-hmm. Yes, at this point, there's just no way that um, any of the vaccines that are currently being tested in clinical trials will be available um, before Election Day. It's just not going to happen. Can you walk us through the vaccine approval process? Because uh, the speed of of these vaccine trials in, in one sense is a, is a good thing when we want to um, see an end to the pandemic. But uh, the general public, a lot of us don't really understand how these trials work. And there's a lot of concern. And also we see um, vaccine skeptics uh, stepping forward saying you don't want to take this vaccine uh, because it's it uh, seems to be uh, moving much quicker than the normal process. So can you walk us through the steps of, of the stages and to make sure that these vaccines are safe before they're administered? Yeah, sure. And there's a lot that goes into this, so I'll try to make this as clear as possible. <laughs> so normally, uh, you know, vaccine trials can run for years and years. Um, and so it's totally unsurprising that you might say, hey, how are we doing this so fast? Um, and really the the main part um, where s- speed is being generated here is actually uh, because vaccines are being uh, manufactured at risk. Uh, and what does that mean? Um, what What that really means is that Uh, Millions of doses of vaccine um, are being made um, in preparation, even while the final stage trials, which is the phase three trials, um, are underway. So normally, it doesn't make any good business sense for you to start making millions of doses of vaccines before the final clinical trial is done. Because, you know, what if it doesn't work? What if the trial fails? You'd just have wasted a ton of money. So normally, what a vaccine maker will do is they will run the trials and usually there are three stages of trial phase one, two, and three human trials after you've done the animal studies. And then it's only when the phase three trial um, is done and you have a good result, then you go to the FDA and the FDA says, yes, we're going to let you go on the market. And then you start firing up, you know, your super big manufacturing plants. What's happening now for the COVID vaccines though, is because we have a pandemic and we're in uh, you know, kind of a, a time time press situation here is that the manufacturers that are going into phase three trials are simultaneously starting the mass manufacturing process. And so that does mean that, you know, if the trial fails, they're just going to have to throw away millions of doses. But that's an okay way to save time because the only thing you're putting at risk there is money. Um, and raw materials, you're not actually risking anybody's health um, or safety in that process. So that's a big time saver. Um, 
And then with regards to what steps needs to happen is when you're in the phase three trial, which is where a number of these vaccines are right now, um, the, the trial has to run at the speed of the trial. You can't force it to run any faster. And when it reads out and you, you have a signal of uh, whether or not the vaccine works, which is efficacy, you take that data along with safety data, which is how did people feel? Did they have side effects or not? And the manufacturer has to present all of that data along with their manufacturing data to the FDA. And then the FDA reviews it and decides whether or not they're going to grant, in this case, it's emergency use authorization mm -hmm. to let it go on the market. Uh, Caroline, uh, many of us saw the headline that Johnson & Johnson's vaccine trial was halted. Can you tell us more about this and what happened? Yeah. So for every trial um, that is, uh, you'll often hear, uh, you know, uh, double blinded, you know, and you're like, what does that mean? And so what that <laughs> means is if you go into a trial as a, as a study participant, um, you don't know what you're getting. So in these trials, there's 30,000 people is pretty typical size. Half of them get the real vaccine, half of them get a placebo. The study participants don't know what they're getting. And the people running the study also don't know what, what they're, uh, who's getting what. And that's intended to make sure that there's no bias in the trial and it's run in, in a super unbiased, and, and this is why it's called double blinded because both sides are blinded as to who gets what until the very end when it'll be revealed. Except there is this one special group um, uh, which is the safety monitoring board, which, who does know who got what. And it's important that they know and that there's this group that knows because they can then track and make sure that there are no potential um, safety concerns or uh, coming from the vaccine. So this special group, the safety monitoring board looks out and if anybody reports a side effect that is known to be related to vaccines, they can look and see, you know, did that person get the real vaccine for, and not a placebo? And if they have any sort of concern, um, they can say, we're gonna pause the trial or we're gonna stop enrollment for a little bit and just take a look and see, you know, are we concerned that this is caused by the vaccine, you know, we're going to maybe check in with all the other participants and see, did other people have this side effect? Now, sometimes this can be a little bit tricky because, you know, there are side effects, you know, which could come from a vaccine like a, like a high fever, which could be caused by, you know, I got a, a really bad uh, cold or I got, you know, another virus that I picked up, you know, um, which is not caused by the vaccine. So, it, you know, these are experts that uh, have to try to distinguish, is this something that came from the vaccine or is it unrelated? And so when I see a trial that gets paused, mm. to me, I don't think, oh my gosh, there's something wrong with the vaccine. To me, I think this is very normal, uh, especially in a trial this large. And this means that the Data Safety Monitoring Board is doing their job. Um, and it's too, you can't read into it because mm -hmm. it could be totally unrelated to the vaccine. It could be related to the vaccine. And it just means that they're doing their job. And I'm glad that there's good oversight. Mm -hmm. 
That's a good point that you raised, Caroline, because uh, when that Johnson & Johnson uh, story uh, came out that uh, their trial was halted, you know, I saw on Facebook people sharing this and uh, using that as a basis to say that people should be doubtful of the process. And it, it does raise questions that the general public doesn't really understand how vaccine trials uh, work. And that's why it's so important to have this information uh, mm -hmm. handy so that people understand it. That they shouldn't be worried. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And and I think this is why it's so important to let trials run to their conclusion, because they are designed um, both in terms of the size that they are and in terms of, you know, the length that they run to be able to really show, um, you know, with statistical significance, um, whether or not a vaccine works. So these are all calculated um, in order to be able to say definitively or not, you know, this works um, uh, vaccine compared to placebo or not, um, and they calculate the numbers so that, to me, the most important thing is that when the data comes out, that we have that sort of statistical significance. And, you know, the FDA has promised, and I think this is so important, that any vaccine candidate that gets submitted to the FDA will be presented to an outside panel, they call this um, an advisory committee, um, of outside experts, this will be in a meeting that is public. Anybody can can dial in and listen to it. It'll probably be a little bit, you know, like wonky, but it's really important <laughs> that it's public here. And because these experts are not FDA employees, they're not government employees, they're just outside experts who will kind of talk through the data. They'll ask questions to the vaccine manufacturer. It's all on the record. And then the advisory committee gives a recommendation to the FDA to say, yes, we think this is safe. We think this is effective. We think you should let it on the market or not. And it is just an, a recommendation. The FDA can um, do something different. And in the, you know, historically, usually the FDA follows the recommendation. There have been instances where the FDA has gone the other way. But I think in this case, you know, there's going to be so much attention on these vaccines. I don't think the FDA can go against the recommendation of the advisory committee. You know, so I will certainly be watching these advisory committee meetings uh, with a lot of interest. And I think it's great that the FDA has committed to having these public meetings, you know, to go over the data publicly in front of the world. Mm. Uh, we mentioned, uh, we heard Dr. Ajay Kumar earlier say uh, that when a vaccine becomes available, it's uh, uh, people may need two doses. And so then we're wondering uh, about the efficacy and what do we know about how effective a vaccine could be? Is this something that you know, we'll need to get every season like we do the flu shot, Caroline? Yeah, these are all fantastic questions. So let me just quickly address the two dose um, issue. So there are some of the vaccines, so Pfizer's and Moderna's, so those are the likely the first two that will come to market are designed to be two-dose vaccines. So um, then there are others that are sort of coming up behind Johnson & Johnson's is a, a single-dose vaccine. Mm. So these are just based on the scientific technology um, behind the vaccines. Um, and, you know, it is the, you know, how they're designed to reach their full potential. Two doses, of course, is logistically more difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and you know we're going to have to make sure that um, we have systems set up so we can track you know let's say I got uh, the first dose of the Pfizer and the Moderna is already on the market so you know I can't go back and get a second dose of the Moderna you know I'm going to have to make sure that I get the right second dose and then I go back and get my second dose so that's a whole other issue for once they're all out um, but in terms of efficacy I think one thing that's really important for the public to understand is that we need to wait and see what the data look like and really have a clear message go out as to how good these vaccines are because there are some vaccines we have you know that we receive like the measles vaccine which are pretty much close to 100% it's like 97% if you 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 get the doses you know both doses um that it really prevents infection so like if you've gotten the measles vaccine you're not going to you can't get infected with measles. It's what they call it. They call it sterilizing immunity. So it's really, really effective. You know, compare that to the flu shot. We all know year to year because they're kind of guessing at what flu strains are going to be circulating. Um, It can be like 50% effective. Um, And, and that doesn't mean don't get the flu shot because it can still help you if you get the flu, um, have a less severe course of the flu so you don't end up getting hospitalized so there's still value there but the coronavirus vaccine um may end up somewhere on that spectrum and i think mm-hmm. what you know a lot of people i've been talking to have been saying we hope it's around like 70 70 80 effective um but that we'll have to communicate that to the public and you might have to understand that this can help you prevent you from getting uh severe illness um from being really sick but it may not prevent you from getting infected in the first place. So we'll have to see um, Mm. what we get. And that's why these trials will answer these questions for us um, as they come out. I love the line in your store. One of your stories, Caroline, getting shots in millions of people's arms is a whole nother story. We hope to have you back uh, to talk about that. Yeah. Again, the logistics of uh, you know, getting this vaccine to millions of people. But we appreciate you explaining this uh, to us. Caroline Chen, again, is health reporter for ProPublica. We will tweet out links to her stories at where we live. Caroline, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.